Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We're going to read this morning the traditional Christmas story. And looking this morning at the subject matter, the incomparable story of Christmas. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Lord, open up your word to us this morning. Grant us understanding. And Lord, transform our lives by the news, the best news of all. The greatest story of all, of a Savior that has been born. And Lord, may none leave this place today without knowing that Savior, Jesus Christ, who's the light of the world. In His name we pray. Amen. I want you to think with me a moment about the year 1809. Now, as you think about the year 1809, if if you were to look at what was going on on the world scene, the world back then was in utter chaos. You see, Napoleon was sweeping through Austria and blood was flowing freely. It looked as if Napoleon would be the next man after Alexander the Great who might conquer the entire world. Now, at that time in 1809, nobody was paying very much attention to the birth of babies. 
And yet there were some very significant births taking place. For example, William Gladstone was born that year. He was destined to become one of England's finest statesmen. That same year, Alfred Tennyson was born to an obscure minister and his wife. The child would one day greatly affect the literary world. On the American continent, Oliver Wendell Holmes was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And not far away, Edgar Allan Poe began his eventful, although tragic, life. It was also in 1809 that a physician named Darwin and his wife gave birth to a son that they would name Charles. And again in that same year in a rugged log cabin in Hardin County, Kentucky, there was a baby born by the name of Abraham Lincoln. Folks, if there had been broadcast at the time, I'm certain the words heard would have been these. The destiny of the world is being shaped on an Austrian battlefield today. But in reality, history was actually being shaped in the cradles of England and America. That reminds me of the events here in Luke chapter 2. For the world, the big news would have been this registration for the purposes of taxation. Everybody would have been talking about that and preparing to make their journey, their travels to whatever town they were from so they could be registered there. That would have been the big news across the Roman Empire. Everybody was busy about that, but while the world was focused on that, there was a more significant event taking place. Out of sight and out of mind, we might say. And it's the events recorded here in Luke chapter 2. This is known as the traditional Christmas story. It is a common, well-known story, and yet the message is unparalleled and incomparable in its significance it's the incomparable story of Christmas now let's see today what makes it so and what we're going to see is the birth of a child that changed everything because of who this child was and what he came to do I want you to see first of all with me this morning the providence of God in the arrangements The providence of God in the arrangements. Again, reading in verse uh, 1, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each one to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Folks, what I want you to see is how God was providential in all of these arrangements. Without a doubt, we see the hand of God at work. It's truly incredible. And what we notice here in his providential working of all of these arrangements is how he works out his purposes in such a way to save us. 
I think of what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 4. He said, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son. I want you to think of that phrase, the fullness of time. And as you think about that phrase, let that phrase be the backdrop to Luke chapter 2. The fullness of time had come. And here's Mary and Joseph, and they're going to Bethlehem. It was a very difficult trek of about 80 miles. As they travel these 80 miles, they would have been on foot and riding on a donkey. And ladies, think about it. Here's Mary, nine months pregnant. In verse 2, Luke is careful to set the historical context for us. He says this was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Now folks, admittedly, verse 2 is a very difficult verse in some ways. We know Quirinius was governor beginning in 6. A.D. 6 A.D. But that's too late for the birth of Jesus because we also know that Herod had died in 4 B.C. And we know that Jesus was born before Herod died. And so that makes this verse a a difficult verse to deal with and there's a couple of solutions now, as Luke and scholar I.H. Marshall says, I. Howard, I. Howard Marshall says, we ultimately will have to wait in time a little bit more until more evidence comes in. But there's a couple of solutions to settle the dilemma. The first solution is uh, some evidence suggests that Quirinius was governor of Syria on two different occasions. If you have the Ryrie Study Bible, for instance, down in the footnotes, it's going to give you the two different times that it's believed that Quirinius was governor of Syria. And there's the time beginning in 6 AD that we're very clear about, but Charles Ryrie also mentions that time even in BC before the death of Herod that Quirinius, some evidence suggests he was also governor then for the first time. So that may be the explanation. But secondly and even more favorably as the ESV footnote points out the Greek can be translated this is the census before the first census when Quirinius was governor. They were doing census all the time. When Quirinius took office in 6 AD, there was one that was undertaken at that time to say that this one is the one before that one is probably the best explanation of verse 2 here. That's the explanation that New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce prefers. Of course, he's passed away now. But at any rate, what I want you to see in all of that is what Luke is doing here for those who were alive at the time to whom Luke was writing. They knew exactly what Luke was talking about. 
It was historical record. They didn't have to guess about it the way we do today. And what Luke is doing is setting the birth of Jesus Christ down inside verifiable human history. In other words, Luke is saying, folks, wake up. This is not a fairy tale. This happened, and you can check it out for yourself. It's kind of like what Paul does in the resurrection narratives in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about all the different appearances of Jesus. Paul says some of those have passed away, but most of them are still alive. The implication is go talk to them for yourself. You can verify it. Folks, the New Testament story about the life of Jesus Christ is historically verifiable. It's not a fairy tale. And Luke is pointing that out. But can you imagine the anxiety of Joseph and Mary, what they must have been feeling at this time? They had no choice but to go and register. After all, Emperor Caesar Augustus has decreed it. And he's the head honcho. He's the one in control. He's directing all of this, right? No, I don't think so. As Proverbs 21 says, the heart of a king is in God's hand and God is able to direct the heart of a king even as he directs the course of a river. Aren't you glad of that, that God is providential? And God is providential at work in human history to save us. Folks, I think of all those great stories in the Old Testament, whether it's Joseph or whether it's Moses or whoever it might be, the way God was at work in human history, providentially arranging events so that people would be saved. And that's what he's doing here with the birth of Jesus. He's the one in charge. He's simply using Caesar Augustus as a pawn in his hand. This, this secular census that has gone out is just a way to get Mary and Joseph where they need to be so they will be in the right place at the right time because God had prophesied hundreds of years earlier that's where Jesus would be born. And so God is lining all of this up. I hope you take a great deal of comfort realizing that we serve a providential God. All that's going on in the world, everything across the globe that may look chaotic to us, we know that history is His story and He's working things for His purposes. And you know what that means? That means you and I don't have to lay awake at night and worry. God's providential. God fulfills his word. The scripture had prophesied 700 years earlier that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. In Micah 5 2, it says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Folks, that prophecy was so specific. Bethlehem Ephrata. 
Hundreds of years before, God says that's where Jesus would be born. What's amazing about that is there were two Bethlehems. There was one Bethlehem up in Galilee, and then there was Bethlehem Ephratah just outside of Jerusalem. And hundreds of years before, through the prophet Micah, God had said his son would be born in Bethlehem Ephratah. The amazing specificity of prophecy. God bringing his word to pass. Can I say to you this morning, God keeps his promises. And you and I need to realize that. God keeps his promises. He fulfills his word. By the way, Bethlehem, the word Bethlehem means house of bread. Isn't it fitting the one who would be the bread of life was born in a town called the house of bread? God waited through history until this precise moment. This fullness of time. Historians talk about the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. You see, under Caesar Augustus, the greatest of all the Caesars, Rome reached the zenith of her power. Due to the overpowering strength of Rome, there was peace in the world. There was a peace through strength. Rome kept the world in check for the most part. And under this Pax Romana, they had a common language, Greek. And it was Koine Greek. Koine Greek is the Greek of the New Testament as opposed to classical Greek, the Greek of the arts at the time. But Koine Greek was the everyday Greek that people would speak on the streets. So there was a common language across the Roman Empire. There was a wonderful road system. The Romans had built magnificent roads that connected all points of their empire, making travel possible for the first time the way it was in the first century, the fullness of time. They also had a very good postal system. In fact, some would say it would rival postal systems today. Never before had the world been so connected. You see what's going on here, folks? This would ensure that God, when God sent his son, it wouldn't remain quiet. The birth of Jesus might have been in a quiet, out-of-the-way place, uh, but, the, but the political scene was such so that news of the birth of Jesus Christ could quickly travel all over the Roman Empire and the news of a Savior could get out beyond the Jews and out to the Gentile world. In this providential working of God, I want you to understand the contrast also that's being set up between God and Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, the adopted son of Julius Caesar, was the first Caesar to be called Augustus, which means holy or revealed. It was a title reserved for gods. In fact, about the same time that Luke was writing these words, some of the Greek cities in Asia Minor adopted Caesar's birthday, September the 23rd, as the first day of the new year and praised him as being saved. 
Savior. One inscription even called him Savior of the whole world. And so they wanted to make a Roman emperor a god. So here was this Augustus making his political decree, thinking he was a god, and all the time he's just a pawn in the hands of the true god. And the irony of it all, here is a king trying to become like God. And here is the true God who is clothing himself in flesh to become a man. The contrast couldn't have been more. Here's Joseph and Mary. They finally arrive in Bethlehem. And every motel has the sign out front, no vacancy. Well, actually, because Bethlehem was a small village, it probably only had one inn. And that's why the text says the end. No vacancy in the end. The only one, and it was full. And so what were Mary and Joseph to do? They went right outside of the inn, somewhere around Bethlehem there, and Jesus, the Son of God, was born in a stable. Now, I know in most of our nativity scenes, we have, a, we have a wooden stable. But in all probability, it was a cave. You see, caves served as their stables and where they kept their animals. If you go to Bethlehem today and visit the traditional site of the birth of Jesus Christ, you're going to go to the church of the nativity in Bethlehem and, and And what they've done is built that church over top of the traditional site of the cave in which Jesus was born. And you go down these steps. You're on the main floor of the church of the nativity. You go down these steps through a little uh, doorway and into this cave section where there's several rooms. And tradition says from the second century on, they'll show you a spot which has always been known as the birthplace of the Lord Jesus. It was probably a cave. And in this cave where he was born because there was no room in the end, they laid Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, in a manger which was nothing more than a wooden feed trough for livestock. Humility. He came in humility. And folks, the providential hand of God arranged it this way. This was the way. It was supposed to be. From man's perspective, Joseph and Mary were nobodies. They were peasants from a nothing town. Why did God do things this way? He did so in order to identify with us. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, the Bible says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Bible teacher Ray Stedman wrote one time he said and I quote here now you would think that if God so rules the world as to use an empire wide census to bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem he surely could have seen to it that a room was available in the inn yes he could have 
And Jesus could have been born into a wealthy family. He could have turned stone into bread in the wilderness. He could have called 10,000 angels to his aid in Gethsemane. He could have come down from a cross and saved himself. The question is not what God could do, but what he willed to do. God's will was that though Christ was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. The no vacancy sign over the motel in Bethlehem was for your sake. For your sake he became poor. God rules all things, even motel capacities, for the sake of his children. The Calvary Road begins with a no vacancy sign in Bethlehem and ends with the spitting and scoffing and the cross in Jerusalem. Folks, the providence of God in all this ought to say something to you. It ought to be a testimony to the fact that God can be trusted with every detail of your life. He's a providential God and a God of detail. Paul even says in Romans 8, 28 that God is able to work all things out for the good of those who love him. Paul's not saying there that everything is good because there are some things that are bad, some things that are sinful and evil. What he's saying is God can even work in those things, not only the good but also even in the bad things to work out his purposes in the lives of those who love him. God is a God of detail. And he's a providential God. If God can take care of all these details here, I want you to understand God can take care of you and me. Amen? The providential arrangements. Secondly, I want you to see the clarity in the announcement. In verse 8 it says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that shall be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ. Christ the Lord. What an announcement. No child born into the world that day seemed to have lower prospects. As Dr. Kent Hughes writes, If we imagine Jesus was born in a freshly swept county fair stable, we miss the whole point. It was wretched, scandalous. The smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and acrid straw made a contemptible bouquet. It was clearly a leap down as if the Son of God rose from His splendor, stood poised at the rim of the universe and dove headlong, speeding through the stars over the Milky Way to Earth's galaxy where He plunged into a huddle of animals. Nothing could be lower. And yet look at the clarity in this incomparable announcement. No greater birth has ever occurred. God gave the news first to the shepherds and that was no accident either. Shepherding was very important in Jewish life. 
Shepherding was a way of life for many of the Jews. You'll no doubt recall that time that Joseph appeared before Pharaoh and asked for some farmland for, for the grazing of, of his people's livestock. He said, my brothers are shepherds. And that's why Pharaoh gave them the area of Goshen there in Egypt, a good area for shepherds. And then there were shepherds in the professional sense who would look after flocks for people and they would move from one piece of property to the next for as long as the land would support the flocks. They were also the ones who raised sheep for the sacrifices in the temple. Remember in the temple every day there was the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice and so a large number of sheep was required for that. In fact, the temple itself employed some shepherds who kept sheep, it's believed, out in the fields of Bethlehem so that these sheep could be brought in and used in those temple sacrifices. Now, if that's the case here, don't miss what God is saying to these shepherds also. You supply lambs for the temple every day, but now I'm going to show you the one who is the true Lamb of God. At the same time, shepherds, while, they, while it was such a well-known profession in Israel, they were also despised in some ways too. They tended to be regarded as thieves because as they would move from one piece of property to the next, sometimes they would get confused what belonged to them and what belonged to the landowner. They were ceremonially unclean. They were unclean to take part in a lot of... They supplied the lambs for the temple sacrifices, but they couldn't go in uh, and, and, and take part because they could not live out in the fields and be ceremonially clean. And so they were considered unclean. It's amazing how God's message went, first of all, to the lowly and to the outcast. Folks, there is a message to that, to those in the world who feel like they don't belong and they're not accepted. God comes to the lowly, the despised, and the humble. His son is not the savior of the world for the who's who's of the world. He's the savior of the world also for the who's nots of the world. Aren't you glad of that? And look at this announcement in verse 10. This amazing clear announcement. The angel said to them, fear not. Now, if you were a shepherd out in a field one night and all of a sudden here's an angel that comes to you and at the end of his announcement, here's this heavenly host, what's one of the responses you're probably going to have? You're probably going to be a little bit afraid, right? What's, what's the angel say to him? Fear not. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because of the message that we're bringing to you. You know, there's a lot of fear today. There's fear of living, fear of dying. And did you realize fear can literally lead to death time and time again? That's shown to be true. After the 1994 Northridge, Los Angeles earthquake, over 100 Californians literally died of fright, according to Robert Cloner, cardiologist at the Good Samaritan Hospital in L.A. He found that fear can be so intense Intense that the brain triggers a release of chemicals so potent that they stop the heart. 
Coroners at the Cleveland Clinic found the same. They studied the hearts of 15 assault victims that were not fatally wounded by their attackers and yet they died anyway. They determined that 11 out of the 15 had died of mortal fright. Fear. Just living in the world today creates a lot of fear for some people. But folks, with Jesus Christ in control of your life, you don't have to fear. Should the best happen or the worst happen, we don't have to fear. We can have faith in God. That does not mean that God is going to remove all the problems and all the trials and all the tribulation out of your life. He may not. He may leave it. He may have a purpose in it being there. And if he leaves it there, he'll give you the strength to go through it and to bear up under it. But one thing is for certain, you with Christ, you don't have to fear. While a lot of the world this morning lives in fear, Christians don't have to live in fear because we know the end of the book. Amen? And then it's this announcement, not only of not fearing, but also of great joy. Look at what he says beginning there in verse 10. The angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that shall be for all the people. Even in the midst of a dark and a troubled world, God gives joy. Glad tidings of great joy. How could there have been joy in a world ruled by Rome at that time? How can there be joy in the world today? All the conflict going on across the globe. How can there be joy? Because of a baby born, the Son of God. Who's the Savior. He's been born. Everybody at this time here in Luke 2 thought the greatest news of all, the biggest news that was capturing everybody's attention was this, was this order about taxation. But in reality, the important thing was this birth of a baby, a young Jewish woman, probably not more than 16 years of age, held in her arms the greatest news of all, the birth of a Savior. Joy. A.W. Tozer writes, If our greatest need had been for information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been for technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been for money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have given us an entertainer. But our greatest need was for forgiveness, is for forgiveness. And so God sent us a Savior. Matthew 1 Call his name Jesus, for he'll save his people from their sins. And call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, save us from our sins. Emmanuel, God with us. Folks, that ought to bring joy to you. Isaiah 9 uh, says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He'll be born, he was human, he's given, he's God, he's the God-man. 
And he's wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Do you need counsel? Do you need strength? Do you need peace? Folks, all of that ought to bring joy. No fear and joy. Christians can be joyous people because we know what God has done for us. Amen? And then finally, quickly, the calming assurance in the visit there in verse 15 and 16. When they got there, what did they discover? They discovered everything just as it had been told to them by the angels. And folks, imagine even the confirmation this would have been not only for the shepherds but also for Mary. Because here's Mary, it's been nine months since the angel appeared to her. They had to make this difficult journey. No room in the end. Her baby has to be born in a stable. Could she maybe have been thinking, did I misunderstand something nine months ago? And here come these shepherds. And they tell her what the angel said to her. It had to be a glorious confirmation for her. And notice what they did. They witnessed. They made known what had been told to them. They, they meditated or pondered on all that had been told to them. They wondered at it. And it says that Mary treasured all these things in her heart. And then they praised. When they left and went back out to the fields, they were praising God for everything that God had told them. Folks, shouldn't that be our response to the birth of a Savior? Witness, meditate on the great things God has done to save us from our sins, and then go out praising Him, praising this great God that we serve. That ought to be our response. In closing, there's a story of an old pioneer who traveled westward across the Great Plains until he came to an abrupt halt at the edge of the Grand Canyon. He gawked at the sight before him. A vast chasm one mile wide, 18 miles across, and more than 100 miles long. He gasped. And he said, you know, something must have happened here. I want to say today, something has happened at this holiday that we call Christmas. It is not just a date on the calendar that involves us buying and giving gifts. Something happened here. And that something is what Luke chapter 2 tells us about. It's that Jesus, God's Son, the Savior of the world, was born. And He has forever changed the world. There's no story quite like it. It's God's story. It's the incomparable story. And whether you like it or not, ultimately, you're a character in this story. For those who are in Christ, it is a happy ending. For those who are not in Christ and who wait too late, it is a fearful and a terrifying ending.
You need to come to Christ. If that's something that's already happened in your life, then I want to challenge you this Christmas season to like these shepherds and like Mary, ponder in your heart what God has done. Think of the magnitude of your sin that Jesus has saved you from. The just died for the unjust that he might take you to God. You know what that means? That means that no Christian ought to ever be casual and careless about sin in their life. Because sin in a fallen world meant that God had to send his son who would die on an old rugged cross and endure all that pain and all that suffering, all the wrath of God against sin so that you and I might be forgiven. Ponder what he's done for you. Don't live your life carelessly. Live it in praise and honor and glory to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you stand, please? If you need to come to Christ, please do so. I would love to pray with you down front as other ministers on our staff would like to do. If you need to make your faith in Christ public or, be, or become a member of a local church, we want to pray with you and help you. You may just want to come to this altar and let this be a little brief time this morning where you ponder the great things that God has done.